Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. If you take your copies of the scripture with me this morning and open to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 4 will be in the first 17 verses of Exodus chapter 4 this morning. I am thankful for God's word. thankful that God has revealed himself to us through his word. Thankful for the graciousness of his word. I'm thankful for the truthfulness of his word. I'm thankful for the power of his word. I'm thankful for the uncompromising nature of his word. To think that we could open up these pages, to think that we could read these words and that we would hear God speak to us. That God would care enough about us to give us His holy word. What a beautiful gift. So as we take this gift in our hands, would you stand with me this morning as we read out of reverence and respect for God's word, we read in Exodus verses 1 through 17 of chapter 4. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak, and he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, the hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak, so he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, 
You shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf? or seen, or blind. Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth, and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, He will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff, with which you shall do the signs. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, please give me physical strength and spiritual energy to speak your word with faithfulness, clarity, authority, passion, wisdom, humility, and liberty. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Excuses are like belly buttons. You know the rest? Everybody has one. Maybe you know someone who has an excuse for everything. Maybe they're one big walking excuse. But why do we as people use excuses? And why are excuses so common? Do we ever use excuses to justify ourselves? We are being held to a particular standard, an expectation. And when we fail to meet that standard or expectation, we are accused and we need to give a reason reason for why we failed. Do we ever make an excuse by trying to say to someone, well, You don't have all of the information. If you just had all of the information, if you just had the bigger picture, if you just saw where I was coming from, then you would understand. If you could just see all of the hurdles and obstacles that I've had to deal with, then you would cut me some slack. It's one thing for us to make excuses to one another. But it's another thing to make an excuse to God. He knows everything. He sees everything. 
Nothing can be hidden from God, and that includes you, and that includes your own heart. But why would someone try to make an excuse to God? Because he has set a standard. He has set an expectation, and that standard is holiness. His standard is complete perfection and righteousness. And our problem is that we cannot meet that standard in and of ourselves. The reason why we can't obtain the standard is because we're sinners. With the fall of Adam and Eve, all mankind, every one of us, is born with a sinful nature. We are inherently sinful. It's not the external problems or temptations that are out there in this world that make us sinful. No, our sinfulness comes from within. Jesus said, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things, all these evil things, come from within and they defile a person. That's Mark 7, 21 through 23. And yet, how many of us still make excuses? God, let me tell you the reason why I'm like this. God, you don't understand the family that I've come from. God, you don't know all of the circumstances that I have had to go through. God, you don't know the heartache that I've had to experience in my life. God, you don't know what it's like to work at that place. God, you don't know the pressure and the stress that I am under. God, you don't know the kind of people that are in my life. Now, I'm not saying this morning that God is not compassionate or concerned about the certain conditions that you experience in your life. We see his compassion even here in Exodus when it says that, that God knew, he saw, he remembered the people and their affliction. I am saying that it's not those external conditions, though, however, that separate you from God. The only thing that separates anyone from God is their own sinful heart. And there is no amount of excuses whereby we can justify ourselves before a holy God. And that's where we are this morning when we come to Exodus chapter 4. We're in the presence of a holy God. That's where Moses is. He's there still at the burning bush. The burning bush that was burning but was not being burned, not consumed. The Lord himself is speaking to Moses out of the bush. He's calling to Moses himself. He's saying, Moses, come to me. Moses, I have a special task just for you. God is calling Moses to obedience and faith. And what does Moses do? God, I got some great excuses. God, let me show you the bigger picture because I think you're missing something. I'm inadequate. Who am I to go to the people of Israel 
But God says to him, what? I will be with you. Moses says, I'm ignorant. Who are you, God? I don't even know your name. But God says, I am who I am. Tell the people I am sent Send you to them. So far, two excuses, two objections that Moses makes to God, and so far, God has responded with great reassurance to Moses' heart. Reassurance that Moses needs to hear, but Moses isn't done yet. And with each objection, with each excuse, the heart of Moses is revealed. And so also, as Moses' heart is revealed, so also our hearts are revealed. Do you think that we would do any better than Moses? (laughs) We are just as frail, just as weak, just as insecure, just as human as Moses. And so our hearts are exposed to the light of the holy God, and we are to see how we also need to change and grow and be transformed. And while last week we saw Moses asking the questions of God, now we come to this text, and now Moses is making some assertions, but now it's God who begins to ask the questions. Questions that are meant to probe the depths of Moses' heart and probe the depths of our hearts. Questions that are to expose who we really are and how gracious of God, not only to reveal himself to us, but also to reveal ourselves to us. To reveal what our wrestlings and our struggles and even the sin that we have in our own hearts, he reveals that to us. And so God here this morning asks questions, questions that we need to hear Questions that God answers perfectly to reassure our hearts. What are the two questions? Well, number one, you can follow along in your bulletin if it's helpful. Who is powerful? Who is powerful? Moses begins his third objection with this assertion. Notice that He makes it with great certainty. But behold, believe me, God, when I say this to you, I know this for certain. This is what's going to happen. They will not believe me or listen to me. They will say, the Lord did not appear to you. Who are you? You remember where we are in God's word? The people of Israel have been under the oppression of the Egyptians for 400 years. The last time we saw the Lord appearing to anybody, it was back in Genesis. Back with the patriarchs, back with Jacob. The Lord appeared to you? The Lord hasn't appeared to anybody for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so Moses says, I just know it, God. I just know it. They're not going to believe me or listen to me. They will doubt the very words that I say. What is Moses saying with this assertion? He's saying, I am incredible. Now, 
He's not saying, I'm incredible like, wow, look at me, I'm incredible, like something special. He's saying incredible in the sense of not credible, not trustworthy, not dependable, not truthful, not believable. Does this resonate in your heart? Do you want to be seen as credible? Don't you want people to listen to you, hear what you have to say, and believe you? We would never come and say, you know, I would just really like it if you would doubt me. Whatever it is I say to you, just doubt me. What's at the heart of this problem? Moses is wrestling with ineffectiveness. God, I will be ineffective. There will be no fruit. There will be no response. God, I am useless. What a terrifying thought for anyone. No one signs up to be ineffective. But with this comes this reassuring word from God. Moses, you need to know the one who is powerful. You need to know the one who is effective. You need to know the one who is always and completely credible. And when the power of God is put on display, all doubting quickly retreats. And so how does God display his power? Through three signs. The Lord begins by asking Moses a question. What's that in your hand, Moses? Moses, the answer to your problem of being ineffective is in your hand. You're holding the solution. What is Moses holding? He's holding a staff or a rod, which would be a normal tool for any shepherd that they would have as they were tending sheep. In and of itself, the staff was unspectacular. It was the Lord who would work through this staff to do the most extraordinary and spectacular miracles. And we see one of these miracles in the first sign that's given to Moses. Moses, throw the staff on the ground. And what happened? Well, Moses obeyed. As soon as he threw it on the ground, it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. Literally, it says that Moses ran from its face. The word serpent that's used here is the same word that's used at the very beginning of the Bible when the serpent met Eve in the garden. There, that serpent deceived Eve. The serpent then was cursed by God and told that he would have to crawl on his belly, eat the dust of the earth. Was cursed by saying that he would bruise the heel of the offspring of the woman, but that his head would be bruised by the offspring of the woman. And so here, in Genesis chapter 3, the cosmic battle was put into motion. And what we see here now in Exodus 4 is a picture of that cosmic battle that's taking place. Here it is. This cosmic battle played out in miniature in the sand on Mount Sinai before Moses' very eyes. There is Moses with the snake fleeing from its, pe- from its presence. The word that is used there for serpent or snake later on in the Bible is used synonymously with the word dragon in the Bible. You come to church today expecting to hear an event about a dragon? Dragon. 
What imagery does that give us in our minds? If Moses threw his staff on the ground and it became a dragon, did Moses just have a fear of snakes or a fear of dragons? Moses is actually reenacting what he had already done. You see, the serpent or the dragon represents the power and the authority of Pharaoh. Pharaoh and Egypt, their power was represented through the image of a snake or a cobra. And this is exactly what Moses has already done in the book of Exodus. He had fled from before Pharaoh. He ran away 40 years before this time. He was scared by that snake, Pharaoh, and so he ran from Pharaoh, he ran from his authority, he ran away from his power. But now, the Lord says to Moses, put out your hand and catch the tail of that snake. Now, I am no expert in snake handling. But some say this is the most dangerous way to catch a snake. You want to catch it behind its head. You don't want to catch it by its tail. Maybe there is a degree of trust that Moses will have to, catch, will have to use to catch the tail of the serpent. But what does Moses do? Moses obeys and catches the snake by the tail. And what happens when he does that? becomes a staff again. What a sign. But what's his purpose? Why does God say, okay, Moses, do this sign. Here is the purpose then, though, behind this sign so that the people would believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob actually appeared to Moses so that the people would believe that the covenant Lord appeared to Moses, the God who faithfully keeps all of his promises. This sign is meant to bring Yahweh, the Lord, front and center before the eyes of the people. And notice the objection and the contrast between what Moses says and what God says. Moses cries out, they won't believe me, God. And God says, I don't care if they don't believe you. I care that the people believe me. It is faith and belief in God that constitutes what is ultimately important in your life. Is that front and center of who you are? First, is your belief in God and in His Son, Jesus Christ? Those who believe in the name of the Son of God have eternal life. This is the most fundamental and necessary faith that anyone can have. But second, are you ever worried about people believing you or are you more concerned about people believing God? Are you worried about your credibility or are you worried about how people view God? It's time for us to take ourselves out of the center of our own universe and let God have his rightful place. And notice what I'm saying. I'm saying it's time for people to believe God. I'm not merely saying it's time for people to believe in God. Yes, I want people to believe in God, that he exists, that he is there. But there can be a lot of people who believe in God, but guess what? They never believe God. They never believe what he says to be true. They never put their faith and trust in him. They never give their lives to him. They never follow him with all that they are. It's time for us not to just tell people to believe in God. It's time for us to tell people, you need to believe God. Is there anywhere in your life this morning where you are wrestling with having to believe what God says in his word? 
We are not merely people who believe in God. We are people who believe God. The second sign then is given to Moses. Moses, put your hand inside your cloak. Moses takes out his hand. Behold, it was leprous like snow. He puts it back in. When he retrieves it again, now it's restored like the rest of his flesh. So Moses receives this disease in his hand. It looks white because the disease is so severe. The whiteness of his hand is showing that his hand is dying or is dead. The whiteness means that death has set in. It's irrecoverable, unrecoverable. There is no medicine that is able to fix such a problem, but Moses puts his hand back in his cloak, takes it back out, and miraculously, his hand is healed. The third and final sign given to Moses is a sign that cannot be replicated like the others because it requires water from the Nile. So these first two signs, God says, here, do them. I'll show them to you right before your very eyes. The third sign, though, Moses has to wait until he gets to Egypt because he has to take water from the Nile. Take water from the Nile, pour it out on the ground, and the water then that you pour out on the dry ground will miraculously become blood on the dry ground. And these three signs... The sign of the snake, the sign of the leprous hand, the sign of the water becoming blood on the dry ground are all miraculous, supernatural signs. You can't explain them away through some natural phenomenon. This is God doing these things. These are actions that are taken by Moses but ultimately are accomplished by the Lord. Only he can do signs like these. But remember that these are signs. And what do signs do? Signs speak. They communicate something. Even God says this, if they will not listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. Literally, it says this, if they will not listen to the voice of the first sign, they will listen to the voice of the second sign. So we have to ask ourselves, what are these signs saying? Moses, grab the dragon by the tail. Behold, Moses, the dragon tamer, the one who is able to control the serpent, the one who stretches out his hand and catches the dragon, just as God is about to stretch out his hand and strike the Egyptians so that they will let the people go. And what a vivid picture of the authority of God. Do you think that Pharaoh has authority? Do you think that Pharaoh has power? Do you think that God has control? Or do you think that Pharaoh has control? No. God has more power. God has more authority. God has more control than that snake ever will have. Catch at, reach out your hand and catch its tail. The serpent will not prevail. God will prevail. He is no match for the authority of God. The all-powerful God will overcome that one. Behold, the hand that was leprous and diseased has been restored. What good news for the people. 
They who were diseased, they who were unclean, they who sat in darkness, they were, who were in the grips of rigor mortis, those who were overcome with death, these God's people would be healed, they would be restored, they would be made clean so that they could approach God and dwell with God and worship God. They would be resurrected from certain death. Here is a nation, God's people, who would be completely restored to God. And this restoration is like none other because this is the restoration of people's hearts and lives. And the signs escalate. We come to the third sign. Water turned to blood. Life turned to death. This is the judgment of God that will be poured out upon the land of Israel. The only reason that Egypt existed was because of the Nile. If there was no Nile, there would be no life there. The Nile was the Egyptians' lifeblood. It was the very basis for their existence. It was everything. For the water of the Nile to be turned to blood means that the Nile would be destroyed, and if the Nile was destroyed, Egypt was doomed. Destruction was coming upon Egypt. God's judgment would fall upon them. The great superpower of Egypt was no match for God. Watch out, Egypt. Watch out for judgment. But to Israel, it was through this judgment that they would be delivered and experience the salvation of God. Do you hear it? Do you hear the voice of the signs? Three signs showing that what they are saying, what they are saying with complete and utter certainty, they are saying, the Lord, He is powerful. He is the Almighty God. No one can subdue Him. No one can bind His strength. His power is unstoppable, and it will accomplish what he has promised. How powerful is God? More powerful than any king or person on earth. More powerful than any nation on earth. More powerful than sin and death. How powerful is God? So powerful that he can save ruined and wretched sinners who were dwelling in the city of destruction. People who had no hope and who were completely in despair. You have every reason to doubt your own effectiveness, but the Lord has proven himself and shown himself to be effective exactly how he desires to be. Who is powerful? The Lord is powerful. Second question. Who sovereignly speaks? Who sovereignly speaks? speaks. Final verses 10 through 17. Moses brings his next objection before God. So far he has been inadequate, ignorant, incredible, ineffective. And now what does he say? I can't talk. I'm not eloquent. I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. Literally saying my tongue is heavy. What's his problem? Moses says, I'm inarticulate. Really, Moses? Seems like you've been doing all right so far. 
But again, God asked the question, who is it? Who is it, Moses? You tell me. Who made man's mouth? Who is it that determines whether someone has, is mute or deaf or sees or is blind? Who is the creator? Moses, you're conso- concerned with the people that won't listen to you. Who made them able to hear? Moses, you are so concerned about what you will say. Who is it that unlooses one's tongue so that they can communicate? It's only the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth, who can do this. So God gives Moses the command, go. I will be with your mouth. I will teach you what to say. Fascinating that the Lord would say that to Moses. If I am with your mouth, he says, Moses, you don't need to worry about what you are to say or how you are to say it. I will give you the words to speak. Moses is the prophet of God. He is to speak precisely what the Lord tells him to say to the people. Moses, all you have to do is you just have to tell the people what I tell you. But in the middle, Moses objects for the last time. Oh, my Lord, please send someone else, anybody else, just not me. We might think that Moses, to be very cowardly at this point, we might think he is very desperate. We might think that God just hasn't gotten the hint that Moses really doesn't want to do this. And finally, Moses has to be blunt and let the Lord know that he'll have to find someone else. Then what does it say? After Moses makes his objection, it says the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Why now? Why all of a sudden? I mean, was this the straw that broke the camel's back? Well, God could handle, you know, four objections, but the fifth one, well, that was it. It's, it's not all of Moses' insecurities that are the problem. It's Moses' insubordination that becomes the problem. This is where it comes to the Lord's anger because Moses is now in disobedience. The Lord has been saying, Moses, here is my will. Here is what I want. Do my will. And with this final objection, Moses is simply saying this. No, I will not do your will. But that's not an option for God's plan. God's will will be done. And so enters Moses, or so enters the the brother of Moses, Aaron. He will come out to meet Moses. His heart will be glad. And again, Moses will tell Aaron what to say. God will be with both of their mouths. He will teach them both what to do. Aaron will speak to the people on behalf of, of Moses And we see the kind of authority that comes with this position that Moses is in. The Lord says to to Moses, Moses, you'll be like God to him. You will have authority over what he says. And Moses will have authority because Moses will be telling him what God says. For our God is the God who speaks 
And when he speaks, he always speaks what is right and true and good. His word has authority. His word sanctifies. His word directs and teaches. His word convicts and corrects. God's will is to get his word to his people so that he might powerfully save them. And Moses, Moses, don't forget your staff. Take that in your hand with which you will do the signs. God's going to communicate to his people in his sovereign way, through his sovereign means, to bring about his sovereign plan. Last week we summarized everything with the idea that God is sufficient, he is enough. His sufficiency overcomes our inadequacy and our ignorance. This week we can summarize by saying God is able. He is more than capable to do His will. His ability overcomes our ineffectiveness or our inarticulateness or even our insubordination. God is sufficient. Yes, He is all-sufficient. God is also able. Yes, He is more than able. And where does God's sufficiency and God's ability, where do they meet? They meet in the person and work of God's Son, Jesus Christ. How so? How am I able to make such a claim? I'm saying, just to be clear, I'm saying that God's sufficiency and God's ability meet in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Last week, I said that Jesus is the pre-incarnate Lord that we see here who spoke out of the burning bush, who spoke those words, I am who I am. And then, in his incarnation, Jesus Christ, the Lord, tells us again that he is the great I am, and he says this over and over in the Gospel of John. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine. Seven times, seven I am statements, Jesus declares himself to be God. He is the Lord. He is all sufficient. He provides all that you need. You are not sufficient to provide anything. You are completely dependent upon him. Yet he is dependent upon nothing and no one. Is Jesus Christ sufficient? Yes, Jesus is sufficient because he is God. So seven times from the Gospel of John, Jesus declares that he is the great I am explicitly. But something else happens in the book of John. If you turn with me, you can see this. Gospel of John, I'm going to start in chapter 2. John chapter 2, Jesus does a miracle. He turns, turns the water into wine at this wedding feast. And then it says this in 2.11. This, the first of what? Of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. So there it is. Jesus turning the water into wine at the wedding feast. This was the first sign. 
right? Chapter 4, what does Jesus there do in verse 46 and following? Jesus heals the official's son. Then look what it says in verse 54 of chapter 4 in John. This was now what? The second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. In chapter 5, what does Jesus do there? He heals this man at the pool of Bethesda. Go to chapter 6. What does Jesus do in chapter 6? He feeds the 5,000. What does he do after he feeds the 5,000 miraculously? He walks on water miraculously. What does Jesus do then if you turn to chapter 9? Jesus heals the man that was born blind, restoring his sight. Then finally, John chapter 11. What does Jesus do? Lazarus, come forth. He raises Lazarus from the dead. Have you been keeping count? We have seven I am statements, and now we have seven signs. What are we to do with this? God is sufficient, and God is able, and these meet in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is sufficient, and Jesus is able. And what is Jesus sufficient for? And what is Jesus able to do? He is sufficient, and he is able to save sinners. Jesus is the one in whom we are to trust. He is the one in whom we are to believe. He is the one who is our reassurance. And we thank God that he was not a reluctant deliverer, but he is the true deliverer who was sent by the Father to give his life as a ransom for many. The deliverer who had the judgment of God poured out on him. And it was poured out on him because of our sin. And it was Jesus as the deliverer who always did the will of God. Even there in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed earnestly in the midst of his agony to his father, saying, not my will, but yours be done. Very different than Moses. Is Jesus Christ sufficient? And is Jesus Christ powerful and able in your life. First, do you doubt that God is able to save you? You don't know what I've done. Don't know what I've said. You don't know what I've thought, Pastor. There's no way that Jesus can save me. I'm beyond saving no one can help me. No one can do anything. That's why John does what he does in his gospel, because he says, Jesus can save you. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've said, no matter what you've thought, Jesus is sufficient and able to save you. But secondly... Do you give lip service to God's sovereignty, but do you deny its power?
Do you give lip service to the sovereignty of God, but do you deny its power? How could you do that? I believe in the sovereignty of God. I believe that God is in control. Everything. God is sovereign. I, I believe that. But yet, you refuse to do His will. You refuse to do what He called you to do. You refuse to obey. You refuse to be an instrument in the Redeemer's hands. Look at what it was back in Exodus 3 and 4. Moses, I'm calling you for a specific purpose. I am the sovereign Lord, and I'm going to execute my sovereign plan, and I'm going to use you as the means to accomplish my plan. I believe in the sovereignty of God, but I'm not going to make disciples. I believe in the sovereignty of God, but I'm not going to evangelize. I believe in the sovereignty of God, but I'm not going to do God's will. That's giving lip service to sovereignty, but that's denying its power. Do you see that, dear Christian, God wants to use you? Do you see that you proclaiming the gospel, you discipling other people, is a means by which he displays his sufficiency and his ability in other people's lives? There was no one else to send. So God sent Moses. There was no one else to send. So God sent Jesus. Maybe there's no one else to send, so God sends you. With the sufficient Savior, with the Savior who can save to the uttermost. With the one who can save, Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. Let's pray. Father, let us believe that our Savior is both sufficient and able to do far more than we could ever ask or even think. Forgive us for the times when we merely give lip service to your sovereignty and fail to see that we are the means that you use to work out your perfect plan. Father, may our hearts be drawn to you as we pray in our hearts with our Savior. Father, not our will, but yours be done. 
we think of our Savior who prayed those words as he had the cross before him. As he was obedient, perfectly obedient to you, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Father, that great sacrifice. Why would we not do your will? Why would we refuse? Give us a desire to seek you, to seek your kingdom above all else. And we pray that your will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.